So what I want to do is elaborate a little bit more on the constructivist teaching idea. I think of constructivist teaching as just plain common sense. I like to compare it to being sensitive to a customer's needs or a client's needs. I am a big restaurant goer and I like to write reviews about restaurants and I've been to a lot of them in my time. And what I notice is that the restaurants that tend to do better are the ones that change with the times and listen to the voice of the customer. For example, I know a restaurant near me, my friend and I go to lunch, and she will always ask for decaf coffee and sweetener or something uh, like equal, and the place always comes back with the same remark about we're not going to we're not going to put up a pot of decaf, we're not going to get half and half, we're not going to bring in sweetener because this is the way we've done it. Now, mind you, the restaurant isn't that old. So I'm thinking that listening to the customer's needs, that's that's really important. And it's it's not so much that you have to give up your original mission of what you're doing. For example, if you're a steakhouse and you're focus is meat and potatoes and comfort food. Nobody's telling you to go and have organic vegetables from the garden as your main dishes and do away with meat. The, the question is, what does the customer want and need and what? how fluid can you be to respond to the people that you serve? And I think of students as different for every class and that if we're not responsive to their needs in terms of teaching and discipline, we're not constructing new ideas based upon our audience, then we're being, uh, we're, we're fitting into a pattern in which we are not showing a growth mindset. Now I know that teachers are told to use scripted lessons and they're told you have to use the common core and do not deviate, and a trainer is coming in to make sure that you're not off target. And as a new teacher, you need to get your tenure, and that's important because you need to eat and you need to survive in order to make changes later. But if you don't have these constraints, there's a need to simply reevaluate your audience, your teaching audience, and to construct knowledge based on the student's construction of knowledge so that they will be more able to motivate themselves into right thinking, right action, and wanting to learn. When I spoke about Heidi Hayes Jacobs and I talked about the student motivating themselves, I don't mean that the teacher takes a passive view and opts out and doesn't do anything. That is not the case. We are not passive recipients of our paycheck, and we just stand there and wait for the kids to change. We have to guide them, motivate them, come up with ideas that connect them to prior learning and their interests. However, our understanding and motivation is different from theirs. So we have to understand how to motivate them so that they can motivate themselves. Have you ever been frustrated by someone who just won't motivate themselves no matter what you do. I've had this situation, and I've had this situation where somebody doesn't want what I want for them. 
My goals for them are simply not the same as their goals for themselves. And try as hard as you may, that won't get the student to change. What you can do is be a positive role model and work on changing your approach so that maybe you can persuade the student or maybe you can work with the goals that they have. We all have to follow standards and we all have to follow policies and rules. I have the same thing when I teach. However, we can always offer healthy choices and that's not easy. And remember that consequences are also part of it. If a student chooses not to engage no matter what you do, a student chooses not to hand in homework or chooses not to complete a final exam or study for it, it is not in our best interest to pamper them and baby them and average in a good grade in they didn't do the work. We have to be real and we have to be honest. So going back, I think that constructivist teaching has a lot of merits. Thank you for listening. It's funny how the early experiences in student teaching really stick with you. When I was a new student teacher, I remember the the experience was such that I was a student teacher in an art class, and I was fortunate enough to get the department chair. And he would just let me take over the whole class. And after he observed me, he said something to me that I did not forget. He said, be real. Tell the kids your story. They like narratives. He said, I know you're not that much older than the kids. Imagine that. I feel like there's eons between me and them. But he said, make sure that you let them know that you're a real person. And this really stuck with me. All throughout my career as a high school teacher, I would tell students little stories or little quips about something we were reading. And it really created a nice, healthy bond between me and the students because I had a tendency to be a real tough love teacher in the beginning. I also remember in the beginning that I was really desperate to learn about classroom management. And there were few books back then. The books that were out there were just simply textbooks and they didn't really tell me much of anything except how to control the kids or the opposite, some hippy-dippy ideas that I couldn't I, I, I couldn't implement in my class. And a friend's husband um, answered the phone when I went to call her one day, and he was a substitute teacher. And he said to me, you have to get the locus of control in the class. He said, you have to let the students know that you are in charge. That doesn't mean that you are controlling. It just means that in the long run, you are the responsible person who's teaching the class and the kids have to know it. And those those two things stuck with me. So I think about what a, a new teacher gets in the beginning really is impressionable to them. This is the same concept as when students first enter their school career, either through preschool or kindergarten, What they learn, you heard that book, What I Learned in Kindergarten Was All I Need to Know. What what they learn in their early years really impacts them. And what teachers learn as a new teacher really impacts them. And the reason I want to talk about this is because 
if you're struggling with classroom management, there's always an overlay of having the right balance with instruction. And I talk about this because I'm big on constructivist teaching in a way. I'm a big planner, but I also believe in constructivist teaching in the sense that you have to know your audience and you have to teach to your audience and adjust your classroom management plan to your audience. The word constructivist teaching is questionable in some people's eyes. I once had a peer reviewer um, tear me down for using that term. But I think it's really important because if you're teaching to students with autism, for example, use of subtle language or idioms is going to be difficult and you're going to have to scaffold up to that. And the kids could potentially act out if they don't understand the language. And this is true of any student. Some of, some of the acting out comes from frustration or just feeling that the work is not relatable. And so I think there's a big com component to classroom management with instructional overlays. I'm not saying that everything stems from poor uh, instruction, but good instruction and good classroom management go hand in hand. What I mean about good instruction is instruction that is on the level that the students can understand it and that they are similarly challenged one level higher. Because we never want to assume that if a student is uh, has a disability or an IEP that they don't understand what we're talking about. They just need to have multiple means of engagement and multiple means of understanding and uh, different entry points to be able to be receptive to the material. And there's also time to change, change it up and insert brain breaks so that our students don't become oversatiated or overwhelmed because that causes them to, be, uh, to act out as well. Now, I've been teaching a course this summer on classroom management, and it's been a great pleasure. It's primarily for teachers who teach adolescents. And so it brought me back to when I was a teacher in high school, and you'd have that one kid who wouldn't buy in, and they wouldn't act out, but they'd be passive and they put their head down. And in some schools, you know, the principal will allow kids to sleep or rest. But in many schools, especially in community schools, a principal will come by and see a kid with their head down and feel very much like the teacher isn't working that hard or getting the kid engaged. And this could be true sometimes, but at other times it could the student could be simply exhausted. So it's important to get to the root of the matter and find out what's going on with the kid. Obviously, I think most of us would do that. But I also think that that one focus learner, so to speak, is a student that we really have to try to reach early because there might be so much going on in his or her life that they may be affected by trauma, they may have to work at night, they may be disconnected from school, and these are the very students that wind up as either victims or bullies because they are not uh, engaged socially with other students. They seem to be disconnected. I mean, there are some students who put their head down who have plenty of friends in the hall and you see them high-fiving everybody. When they come to class, they're just not connected. That 
could be because they're learning, they have a learning disability or that they don't like the subject. But at any rate, we really want to reach the kids who not who don't just act out, but they're passive aggressive. They don't do the work. They put their head down. They're tuned out because inevitably this leads to a challenge with the student or it leads to a challenge with an administrator or a parent. Because when our students don't engage, then they, they do not understand the work or they, um, they're at risk potentially for acting out, they're at risk for dropping out of school, especially those older uh, students. And we wanna think about relevancy. Again, that's an old concept that I learned from my very first days of student teaching and readings of John Dewey that the work should be relevant. There are two schools of thought. One school is that the work should be standards-based and everybody learns the same thing and it doesn't matter if the work is relevant or not. Everybody has to meet these standards. And then there's another school of thought that the work matters and it matters to the individual person. And that if the individual person isn't receptive to the work, they're not going to learn it. Well, teaching is completely up to this, this, the student who is taking in the material. I was watching a video of Heidi Hayes Jacobs this morning, and she was talking about the famous educator, Heidi Hayes Jacobs, and she's very involved with curriculum mapping and uh, English as a new language. And she was talking about the only one who can get a student motivated is the student themselves. She was talking about an example of how to get students motivated and get them hooked into 21st century learning. And sometimes when we teach younger children, we don't think about transitioning them to real life situations. And we don't think about the skills that they need for real life, um, their real life journey. And the skills are beyond technical skills or working with computers. It's about critical thinking. It's about becoming more independent and motivated and self-determined and collaboration. And this is, uh, this, the same thing is true for middle school and high school students, but even more so because when they go out into the world of work or the work, the world of higher education, they are more likely to have to work in groups and to have to think independently and come up with solutions than, uh, than our generation, because our generation was about taking in information and being able to memorize it and you know, regurgitate it or spit it out on an exam and, of course, take that and synthesize it. But now with computers and technology, students really can retrieve information. It's not just retrieving information, but what are you doing with that information? And to look at a student and think that you have to stay on low-level work because they have you know, outwardly appearing not to understand it, or they have a learning disability, or perhaps they're a second language learner, is an assumption. And we need to get past our assumptions as part of being a good classroom manager taking a while to look around and to find out exactly what our students are learning when learning is an engaging process and that multiple means of 
multiple modalities and means of engagement are being practiced in the classroom. And teachers have a tendency to think inside the box now because they're programmed that if you don't think inside the box and if you don't cleave to your school culture, you could get written up or let go. I mean, we all are employees and we all have to follow our employer's wishes. But when it comes to kids, we have to also think about advocacy and we have to think about what is right for the student. And it comes down to, again, constructivist thinking and constructivist thinking when it comes to student discipline. There is no one right approach to student discipline or classroom management. I am the last person to put down any approach. The only approach that I would veer away from is an approach that leaves kids with a lower self-esteem, um, excluded more, or feeling that they cannot regroup. And I think it's important to have a chance for students to regroup, to refresh, to make restitution, to start a new day. But students also need an action plan. This isn't something that's vague or should be left out to the um, the uh, the chance that things will go right. There needs to be an action plan when a student engages in disruptive or disturbing behavior over and over again. There needs to be an action plan that doesn't involve just the teacher. It needs to involve a team. Uh, the student didn't get this way overnight, and he probably isn't this way only in your class. I mean, he may be. That may be an anomaly, but most likely... These symptoms are being exhibited all over the school in many different ways. So when a student is um, definitely acting out and it becomes a pattern, a habit pattern, when they are disturbing the lessons and or they're uh, engaging in dangerous behavior, persistent and dangerous behavior, we turn back to a few podcasts ago and we can engage in tier three, which is a more intensive approach to classroom management. Now, tier three is usually for students with uh, disabilities, students with an IEP, even students with a 504. And what happens if students with general who are in general education are acting out to this degree? I think the knee-jerk reaction is to refer them to special education, or in some schools, there's an RTI team. I think that even to drill it down even further, we need to look at our guidance systems and supports in the school. And we need to start thinking about the instruction for that particular student as well from the teacher's end. The guidance support doesn't have to mean the solo guidance teacher. The poor solo guidance teacher is burdened down with scheduling and programming and taking care of crisis intervention situations, trying to work out uh, more parent involvement. I'm talking about a guidance team, and I think if a guidance team can identify a few students who are troubled in terms of not meeting expectations with behavior and put them on the agenda and have a case conference and come up with a similar plan that you would do for a student with disabilities without the intensity, because remember, if you do an intense data collection, you need to get consent but come up with a viable plan for improvement, I think that it will be more focused. 
than reacting to the student or bringing him into the assistant principal, who is also very busy and overwhelmed, or the dean, who is actually supposed to be breaking up fights and um, <laughs> keeping the whole safe for democracy and trying to come up with security measures for the whole school. The, those one or two students need a lot of guidance help. And I think that that's one thing. I was fortunate enough to work in a couple of schools where that was a focus, where there was guidance team, a child study team, there's different names of it, pupil personnel team, but really taking a team approach to working with the student. And then the teacher, of course, has to look at the instruction and the AP has to look at whether they're in the right class. It could be that the student is not receiving the right class, they may have the wrong program, they may be a holdover, they may be with a teacher who is not reaching them and maybe they need a different instructional approach. All of these permutations and combinations can help with classroom management. And it's not just about the teacher being the locus of control, but the student being having their own locus of control, asking the student key questions, finding out what, what is happening at home, at school, and whether they're connected to the learning community and whether they're connected to themselves. So all of these things make me think about a book that I'm reading that a student, um, this term, recommended to me. And this is very uh, a very good book that I think... Um, Without understanding much about restorative practices, I think that a teacher can read this, and if, even if they don't have a foundational knowledge, this is a great precursor to understanding restorative practices. And it's called Teaching with Love and Logic by Jim Fay and David Funk. And I just ordered this book two days ago, and I'm almost halfway through it because I find that it's a very practical book, although it was written in 1995. There's an updated version of it. And I'm finding that a lot of these principles have restorative overlays to them. I mean, this book also talks about choice and it talks about consequences, which I think uh, the restorative practices are, see it a little bit. There's a different perception of choice and consequences, but this really lays it out for teachers, new teachers. And I think that even as a veteran teacher, I pulled away a lot from this book. There's some things in this book I do not agree with, and I'll be the first to say it, um, such as in the beginning, there's a ca very casual approach to rules, and I feel that rules are really important, and selecting the right rules, the rules that really matter to the students. And uh, But there are some really great things in here, um, taking taking a values approach rather than a systems approach, uh, saying I noticed instead of um, I like, little things that really help understand how to approach students and how to make subtle changes. Um, so that's my recommendation. I think that I like to recommend things that are easy to read and are focused on practical um, practical matters in the classroom where you can make changes to the to the classroom very easily and succinct, succinct, succinctly excuse me succinctly so um, 
Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you've um, enjoyed the podcast so far. And good day.